independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com shop, as well as our listener patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this independent show starting at $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support, sharing your favorite episodes with friends, or leaving me a rating and review in the podcast app. I read them all, they warm my heart, they keep me going, and I really, really appreciate your support. So thank you so much. Oh, and I do want to let you know, there were some background noises that I wasn't able to edit out in this episode, so I apologize for that in advance. It's still an amazing conversation. I learned a ton, so I hope it's not too bothersome and that you still enjoy it. When does science inform policy and why? What we learned is that there isn't really a strong relationship between science and policy, and that science doesn't actually drive change. That was Amy Lewis, an award-winning nonprofit leader, environmental policy scholar, and vice president of policy and communications for Wild Foundation, which is an organization that has been protecting wilderness, wildlife, and people through collaboration and connection since 1974. There were some profound learning lessons that surprised me in this conversation regarding the relationship, or lack thereof, between policy and science. We also go over why Wild Foundation is working to protect half of our planet through Nature Needs Half, and what that means in countering biodiversity loss, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I actually grew up in a very conservative family that was oriented towards patriotism and the military. I was an army brat. I had been encouraged to develop kind of political opinions from a very early age. And of course, these were very much shaped by my, my parents. They were, you know, about this realpolitik worldview and checks and balances and things like that. So I hadn't really been encouraged to think about the environment much. But when I was in fourth grade, I encountered through my class a magazine called Zoo Books. And in Zoo Books, they would always feature a profile like an animal, dolphins, tigers, orangutans, things like that. And Zoo Books never, ever captured my imagination. Everyone in my class loved them. I wasn't really about them because I just, I saw these these animals as, as kind of poster children for zoos and they didn't really seem to impact my life. But then one day, a new issue of Zoo Books came out and it was about bats. You know, I picked it up and I wasn't expecting much, although I thought the bat was kind of a weird animal to feature, right? 
In this magazine, I learned that bats were these essential conduits for a very important process that made life on Earth possible, and that's pollination. And that they had they planted the rainforests and they pollinated crops, and that bats were essentially partners, allies with human civilization in making it possible. Instantly, I was converted to this religion of bats. I became most obsessed. I was just, I was running around. I couldn't stop talking about bats. I was doing research on bats. I discovered an organization called Bat Conservation International. And my parents, to their credit, even though, I mean, they didn't really, they didn't really expect this turn of events for me to go crazy over bats, but they encouraged me to fundraise for a membership into this organization, which I did. And I've been a lifetime member ever since. And that was really, I think, the moment of my environmental awakening. And it wasn't just my environmental awakening. It wasn't me just having empathy for another creature. It was me having a glimpse of being embedded in something larger than my family, my community, or my nation even. It was the sense of being embedded in the life web and all of that through this relationship we have with bats and pollination. So your work as a political scientist and researcher has largely explored the relationship between democratic decision-making and policies that benefit the environment. What got you interested in this field specifically, and what were you looking to learn? There's a couple of things. The first is that I think the tendency, especially in conservation, and this isn't, this isn't true across the sector, it's just a generalization, but the tendency is to kind of make assumptions that reality is purely material, that there are these ecological processes that are driven by molecules and ecosystems and plants, things that we can touch and we can see and we can smell. Because of that, conservation has taken a very natural science-oriented approach where it's you know, all about creating new maps and learning more about ecosystems and how to connect those ecosystems. What I think has been missed largely, but there's a, a new awakening about that, is that reality isn't just material. It's not just objective. There are objective components to it. But as long as you have intelligent creatures like humans on a planet you are going to get a subjective and immaterial reality too. And we've seen that the subjective and immaterial reality, our beliefs, our aspirations, our cultural values, can drive material reality as much or more than material forces. When we look at the Anthropocene and the ways that humans have shaped this planet in such a rapid period of time. We have defied geologic time and we have accomplished these rapid changes, oftentimes to the detriment of ecosystems. All of that has been driven by political and cultural and immaterial forces, beliefs about the world. So my interest in political science is, is really an interest in power and government and the interrelationship between what we believe is, is right and, and what we believe is powerful and how those beliefs then shape the government that ultimately shapes the world. That's a really powerful revelation that there are these different layers of reality. I feel like a lot of what's been driving our more destructive behaviors with this material world is because we've been living in our concepts 
of reality or in this sort of alternative reality that's driven by the immaterial things, as you mentioned? Yes. About 10,000 years ago, there were some very profound things that began to happen to our species. We began to make discoveries and act on those discoveries that gave us an extraordinary amount, an unprecedented amount of control over our environment. And that started with the agricultural revolution. It transformed into the rise of civilization. Through the rise of civilization, it transformed into this idea of of infrastructure development and the idea that we can control every square inch of this planet. Along the way, we lost some knowledge and we lost a felt sense of being embedded in the web of life. I believe that more than anything, the loss of that knowledge and the loss of that awareness is driving the acceleration of destructive change right now. If we don't find some way to embed that knowledge in society and embed its values and then act on those values, we're never going to address the root causes of what's of what's driving environmental destruction right now. In terms of that policy piece, Why is it that in spite of scientific consensus being so clear about the ecological crises that we're facing right now, we seem to be unable to translate that into political consensus and action? Where does that level of reality live? That's a really interesting question, and I, I'm glad that you asked it. And actually, in in my political science courses, we would oftentimes study the relationship between science and policy. When does science inform policy and why? What we learned is that there isn't really a strong relationship between science and policy, and that science doesn't actually drive change as much as, as there is a segment of society that believes in science, that values science, those values aren't widespread. Because of that, there is a disconnect between the levers of power and science. So what does drive change? Well, I think that's different for different segments in society. But ultimately, humans, and this is another awakening that we're having in the field of economics and psychology, humans aren't purely rational. We're not computers that have clear objectives, and we take the the shortest route to achieving those objectives. We actually are embedded in a lot of irrational processes, I think. And I use the word irrational, but that's not a bad thing. Some of these irrational processes define who we are in really positive ways. They make us warm and caring creatures that do silly things sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, And that's fantastic. What the problem is, is maybe not so much that humans are irrational and that this is in our DNA, but it's that our theories about change and and about humanity have been wrong. The idea that, oh, if we just if we just present the right information, if we just present the right science, people will see the truth and they'll change. No, what we need to change is the way we address the population. And that is, okay, science says this. So how do we tap into people's values and their priorities where they're at right now? And oftentimes those values and priorities are going to be around their their self-esteem, around their families, around providing, you know, meals on the table, around getting enough leisure time, around living a reasonably healthy life. How do we tap into those priorities 
and use those priorities to launch into one, educating and outreach about this message, and then two, actions that that those populations can take that will help result in change. So oftentimes we talk about science communication. I'm actually kind of moving away from the concept of science communication. It's not it's not about better and more compelling presentation of the facts. This is about making big conceptual leaps from the science into values. When we talk about, for example, pollinators, and I'm, I'm still, even though I work in the wilderness space, I do a lot of volunteer work around pollinators. When we talk about pollinators, we instantly connect that to pu- the public interest and to the health of families. And that pollinators are there as a, as a keystone species that let us know that in our neighborhoods where those pollinators are dying, our children are being exposed to toxic chemicals. Our families are being exposed to toxic chemicals. Our food supply is being exposed to toxic chemicals. Making that remote issue of another species that doesn't speak our language a proximate issue that is felt in the household and in the individual heart. I think to those of us who really value science, it's definitely mind-boggling how Others can fail to see the same things that we see and, in our minds, fail to see the facts. And in a recent congressional hearing where youth activist Greta Dumbre, uh, she testified in front of the U.S. Congress and she emphasized, I want you to listen to the scientists and I want you to unite behind the science. The Congress member directing the session then asked her, can you explain why it's so important to listen to the science? To which she basically responded, and this is a paraphrase, but she said, because it's the science, it's not political views or my opinion, it's the science, end quote. What do you make of the basic question asked of her of why even listen to science? And given that science has become politicized, how effective do you think telling politicians to just listen to the science will be? I think that we are seeing a shift in society and in public opinion. I think there have been some recent polls that have come out that now say that two-thirds of Americans do believe that the climate crisis is real and that it is driven by human activity. But I think that shift has come about as much from a repetition of the facts as it has come about with a growing social proofing is what we call it, where people begin to see that their neighbors believe something and are acting on it. And they begin to feel connected in a larger community of people who value that. And so it's something that that then there's there's social pressure to do. So it's not, it doesn't come directly from the science, it comes from social pressure. But I think that the question that the congressman posed to Greta, as much as it appalls people like you and me, who are essentially on board with the the authority that is science, it's an authority that we trust, we have to recognize is there's a lot of people out there that it's not that they don't trust science, but they don't trust it as much as other authorities. The authorities that they do trust may come from religion, they may come from the government, but there are authorities that they have essentially ranked, without even knowing that they've done it, but that they've ranked higher than scientists. Simply repeating the idea, well, we should just trust science because it's the scientists and it's objective, is not going to do a lot to change the hearts and minds of people who still are operating 
from a, a, a system that is driven by different authorities. What needs to happen in those cases is that we need to reach out to those authorities and we need to start connecting with their value systems, discussing and listening and being, you know, having this reciprocal dialogue, listening to them, but working with them ultimately to kind of come up with some shared objectives around, okay, so we do have this objective reality here. How can we embed that objective reality and the needs of that objective reality in the system that you're working in? To get to the second question about politics and, and, and what do we need to do for politicians to embrace scientific reality, I'm not sure that that will ever happen. Even if, if a politician personally believes in the science, leaders need help. There is a famous quote from Barack Obama where I think he was talking, I forget about what issue it was he was talking about, but he said, make me do it. You have to make me do it because they are facing powerful and organized constituencies that are narrow, that are limited in scope, but that they're incredibly powerful with lots of resources and lots of money. They need to see a counterbalance constituency to that that is also powerful and that's broad and that's very vis visible and that constituency demanding of them that they take the right action. And that's when you start to get decisions that are more in the public interest than these political decisions that are driven by narrow private gain. So it sounds like it's really not just about continually spreading the facts and raising awareness of the same issues over and over again. We have to be able to understand what people value, who they look up to, and then understand the relationship that they have with other people around them. And then, I guess, to strategize, in a sense, how to best translate that objective information into a way that will best appeal to them. Absolutely, Kamea. I think that there has been in conservation, because the emphasis has been on studying ecosystems and studying the natural world and knowing what's best for the natural world, that we have overlooked and we've glossed over the needs of the social world. And in fact, we're living in a dual system that is both social and ecological, and that social system is influencing the ecological system as much as the ecological system influences the social system. But what conservationists have been great at is understanding the interconnectivity of the ecological system. And they have kind of glossed over the interconnectivity of the social system and the fact that there, there are these embedded relationships in the social system and that you can't just have this silver bullet message. You just can't, you can't just throw out the best fact and the, the most concise and beautifully crafted message. Because one, that's not going to reach a lot of people. You have to have a distribution network. You have to have people repeating it over and over again. But two, that doesn't actually drive mass change. What drives mass change is grassroots leaders across a network, a community network that are helping influence their constituents and their congregations, one sermon, one speech, one house party at a time. And over time, there's just this gradual accretion where you you begin, resistance begins to melt in the face of, of so much social interaction. And social interaction and our feelings around that social interaction are the most real things in the world for most people. Most people will probably never see a tiger in the wild. Most people will probably never visit the Amazon rainforest. Those things exist essentially in their imaginations. But what's real for them is what their neighbor thinks about them and how they feel about the way they exist in their community. And that's where change happens.
You mentioned this earlier. There's a lot of talk about our need to get money out of politics so that our policies will end up reflecting what people want as opposed to what powerful corporations and industries want. Because obviously, there's a lot of money being paid to these politicians from these powerful industries, and that's why they may feel like they have a stake in protecting their interests as opposed to serving the people. Do you think there's a way for us to exert enough public pressure so that in spite of them having taken so much money from these powerful industries, they can still end up making decisions that serve the people? Or do you think we need to objectively get money out of the system? It would be nice if it were a nice linear process where we got money and then that money could lead to the generation of public pressure and that public pressure could lead to change. But in fact, all of these things are kind of happening simultaneously. In my role at the Wild Foundation, where I'm, I work on policy issues, I work on communication, but I also work on fundraising, I oftentimes ask myself, okay, it would be nice if we had money, but how can we achieve this? through other means, without money, in case that doesn't come through. So as a, a grassroots leader, I basically set myself a goal. And then I'm like, okay, there's there's Route A, which might be the most direct way to get there, but there's Route B and C. And we can, we can also work on achieving this that way too. So I think in the grassroots level, it requires us to be outcome-oriented, not just output-oriented. And in money, oftentimes, it's just an output. It, it's, it's, it's a bridge to something else, but sometimes we can make a different bridge. I'd love to touch on your work at Wild Foundation. So you're the nonprofit's vice president of policy and communications, where you're working to help activate an international ethic of care for wildlife and wild places. What are some of the most urgent issues that the nonprofit hopes to address today? And how are you going about doing this? My background is in outside of political science. It's in community organizing. What I'm really doing at Wild right now is international community organizing around the issue of protecting 50% of the planet by 2030. And the reason we're doing this is because when you protect nature and when you protect biodiversity, you take the fastest, most efficient step to addressing a lot of other problems from climate change to human well-being and human livelihoods. Nature is this 400 million year old engine that has worked to produce the conditions necessary for life on earth. Every time we remove an ecosystem from nature, it's as if we're taking a part out of our car engine and we don't even know what that part does. Your car may continue to work for a week or two if you do that every day, but if you continue to do it over the long run, it's going to stop functioning. And that's what's happening right now with the entire biosphere is that we've removed so many pieces out of that living green engine that the biosphere is beginning to weaken. And we knew this. We knew about this back in the 1970s was the first research that was published by the Odoms, actually, that showed that over time, if you degrade more than half of an ecosystem, approximately, the functionality of that ecosystem begins to drop off precipitously in a nonlinear fashion. And you reach this tipping point where it just crashes, even if you still have 30% of the ecosystem left. Scientists began to start applying that to the entire biosphere in the 1990s. And the Wild Foundation was the first international nonprofit to come out in 2009 with a call to action for protecting half the planet. 
I am now a part of a team that's spearheading an effort to organize constituencies and leaders in five really important countries that collectively are known as the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, to create national level support for the idea of protecting at least 50%. In some places like the rainforest, you really need to protect 70 to 80%, but at least 50% of those areas and to create an ethic where the populations in those countries want to see 50% of the planet, its land and seas protected as well. And the reason we're focusing on the BRICS is because not a lot of places are. Like the, the, the dialogue has really been focused on North America and Western Europe, and for good reasons. Those are powerful places. So are the BRICS. And the fact of the matter is that if we don't work to build support for, for the planet in Brazil and in China, we're really abandoning the idea of a wild biosphere in the decades to come, because those countries are really going to drive the change. So that's why why we're working there. And and our goal of 2030 is basically if you can if you can set aside half of nature or more, you will address the sixth mass extinction and you'll take a massive step forward to basically halting the sixth mass extinction in its tracks. And you'll also set aside enough, enough nature where we can continue to sequester enough carbon so we don't blow our Paris climate accord targets. Because basically, we could have all the renewable energy in the world, but if we lose half of our, our remaining primary forests, we will still blow the Paris climate target because that's how much carbon is sequestered in the trees and in the soils of those forests. We know that as we're entering our sixth mass extinction, I believe estimations show that our current rates of extinction are 100 to 1,000 times or more greater than the natural background rate of extinction. In terms of climate change, there are numbers showing, you know, how much carbon can we emit left before we reach a level of environmental catastrophe? Do we have similar numbers for wildlife extinction in terms of how many years we have left of that before we reach, I guess, ecological collapse in that sense? I'm not trying to simplify climate research here because it's it's very complicated but ultimately there's there's one relationship that kind of drives everything around climate and that is how many parts per million of greenhouse gases are in in the atmosphere and from that we can make good predictions about what the temperature is going to be on the planet it's not as simple with ecosystems because it's it's not just about one or two species here and there one or two parts of an ecosystem it's also about the interconnectivity and the relationships between those species and the interactions that they create. So, you know, we're just beginning to understand the fact that whales and rhinos and sharks are actually incredibly important parts of a biosphere that has oxygen in it. These are the gardeners of the planet. And when they create waste, they are feeding the plankton, which produce 50% of the oxygen on our planet. They actually increase by, like, I, I, it's a ridiculous number. It's like, it's five, a seed is 500 times more likely to germinate once it's passed through the GI system of a rhino than it is if it just falls off the tree. So they plant the forests that create oxygen. We're just beginning to understand that. And there's a lot of other processes that go on from pollination to mitigating disease spreading pests and things like that 
that happen in our ecosystems that we don't understand. But one of the simple things we can we can look at is okay, so how much carbon do our ecosystems sequester? And and if we remove those ecosystems, how much carbon is this then going to be released? So we can talk about that a little bit. And the, the research isn't as advanced as it is in climate, and most people believe that it's an underestimate. But in terms of our primary forests, they believe that Earth's primary forests 100 parts per million carbon, that if we were to remove those primary forests, we would have 100 parts per million more carbon in the atmosphere than we do now. So that's one simple thing we can look at. But there's all sorts of other things from the, the creation of topsoils. You know, we're, in, we're, in, we're not just in a, a climate crisis. We're in a topsoil crisis. The UN in, in, in December of 2017 came out with a report that says that Earth has between 25 and 60 harvests left. And that's because of the state of our topsoils. Why are our topsoils vanishing? Well, the two biggest causes are deforestation um, and the erosion that's caused to topsoils because of that. And then also pesticides, because pesticides kill the organisms inside the soil that make soil. <laughs> and so, you know, there's some places on the planet, like North America has pretty decent topsoil, so they have more like 100 harvests left, whereas parts of China only have 25 harvests left. But yeah, we have a topsoil crisis between 25 and 60 harvests globally remaining. And that, again, gets to the fact that there are a lot of relationships out there that, that are unseen on a daily basis that support our ability to live and to have civilization. And if we don't start respecting those relationships, we're not going to have a civilization for much longer. I think in terms of our ecosystems, it's really important to remember that the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts because of all of the synergistic relationships that exist between players within that ecosystem. And the same thing is true for our agriculture as well, or same for our health. You know, whole foods are more than the sum of their parts. So with this being more complex in a sense, whereas it's not just about comparing two numbers, how do we translate this objective reality into something that can be easily understood and, I guess, translated to appeal to people with different sets of values? Again, that's the $64,000 question, and I think that there's more and more people working on that. I think one shift we need to have in our mindset around communications is that we need to start moving more towards silver buckshot versus silver bullets. And the fact is there's a lot of different populations in the world. There's a lot of different demographics. There's also a lot of different psychographics. And because of the internet, we have more ability than ever to kind of self-select into our own communities and reinforce our values and identities there. We need to be strategic in, as conservationists in how we reach out to those communities, what communities we reach out to, and focus not just on mobilizing the choir and, and fundraising or getting people out to protest, but expanding the choir and, and kind of being cognizant of populations that might be receptive to a conservation message, but aren't currently on board. One of those populations I'm, I'm working with right now would be soccer moms. And that's because soccer moms may not be receptive to science communication, but they're definitely receptive to messages about what's good for their children. And, you know, if you say, 
like it's going to, you are going to help support your family and the health of your family when you support pollinators or when you support healthier soils or when you support these policies that your kids are going to have a better life and a better future and, and your family's going to be healthier. That's something that they'll listen to. And they, they don't necessarily need to know or want to know all the relationships that go along the way. Like it's important to have the information there in case they want to check. But what, what they really need to know is, okay, what do I need to do to make sure my kids are healthy, that I'm not poisoning them at the table and that they're going to have, you know, a good future and I have grandchildren. So that's, you know, that's, that's one population. I think another population would be what I call people of action. Those are people who might like be susceptible to military recruitment ads. Like they're, they're looking to serve. They're looking for a greater mission and purpose in life. They're looking to advance the values and the needs of their group. And right now, like through patriotism and, and military recruitment ads, like, like countries have done a really good job at activating and using those populations. And I think conservation could use similar techniques to show, look, if you, if you become a conservationist, if you become a ranger, if you go out and you work on anti-poaching or like protecting an ecosystem or whatnot, you are a hero to your community because you're improving the well-being and you're defending those, those parts of their community, those ecological parts that supports the well-being of the whole. And to close, what final cost to action do you have for us in terms of how we can play our individual roles, strategically shaping our future for the better? There's two things that I would like from essentially everyone on the planet. And the first one is, I think, maybe something they're not expecting. And that is, I want everybody on the planet to start feeling more entitled. I want everybody on the planet to feel entitled to a fulfilling life that is embedded in um, a community that is connected to itself, to each other, and to nature, where the natural environment is not constantly under threat, where we don't have to worry about it or whether it's going to be around for the next hundred years, and where it's healthy, it's abundant, it isn't poisoning us, it's medicine for us, it's nurturing us because we in turn are nurturing it. And so I, I want everyone to kind of imagine what it would be like to wake up in a world like that and to start feeling entitled to it. Because until we start feeling like we deserve that type of meaning and connection, I don't think that we're going to do what it takes to make that happen. The second thing that I would like from people is for them to not get cynical and not get despairing about the power of one and the power of their voice. Not get despairing about government either. Yes, government can move slow. It can be very frustrating. But for those of us who are fortunate enough to live in democracies, government is like the, the coordinating central nervous system of those countries and of the ecologies that fall into their jurisdiction. When we start demanding more of our leaders and we start doing that collectively in an organized fashion, things do change. And so we need to not give up on politics but to start using it and coordinating more effectively in order to get our governments to change and make the dramatic transformations we need in our policies that dictate our relationship to nature. 
You're listening to Green Dreamer with Kamea Shane, and we're now going into a mindful musical intermission before closing off with our final five. Don't wait any longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? It's Wallace Stegner's letter to Congress before the creation of the 1964 Wilderness Act in the United States. And, you know, there's there's a lot of problems with the way wilderness is defined in the United States. It's not, it's not the definition that the Wild Foundation follows. But Wallace Stegner's defense of wilderness and of the wildness in the human spirit is one of the most inspiring and rejuvenating statements you could read. And so I, will, I would encourage everybody to go look up Wallace Stegner's letter to Congress. And there's actually a couple of videos out there where he's reading it, so you can just listen to it too. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? One of the most difficult things that we have to do in our lives, just as human beings, and this has been throughout human history, is to be able to recognize, honestly recognize and identify the problems that are around us and in our community and to step up and take responsibility for them and change them. Sometimes this can get really exhausting. Taking responsibility can get tiresome and it can be like a burden to be an adult in the room. But what I tell myself is when I take responsibility, I'm actually taking control of the reins of power that are afforded to me. And I become more powerful every time I take responsibility. And so this is actually probably less exhausting than the alternative, which is to just continue to look at all the problems and to feel despair about them. So I think of responsibility as a privilege, not as a burden. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? It's so funny because I do wilderness conservation and oftentimes I don't get out into wild nature as <laughs> much as I would like. So I'm actually I'm actually making like like I'm like making date nights with nature, right? Where it's like, okay, so today after work I'm gonna go on a hike. I'm not, you know, just gonna go home and um read articles on my phone and, and whatever. I'm going to take a hike. This is my date night with nature. <laughs> I love that. We, we all need more of that for sure. Um, <laughs> what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I've always focused on developing my own skills and my own competencies. And I'm getting to this place right now where actually it's more fun for me. And I think also the most effective thing I can do 
is to help other people really step into their talents and embrace them and wield them in a more effective way. So I'm learning how to do that. And it's such a privilege to, to be able to watch other people flourish and, and take hold of their sovereignty and their power. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? There's this awakening that's happening right now that is profound and it's global. And that's incredible. What we need to do now is translate that awakening into actions that are just as rapid and just as profound. Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Amy's work at Wild Foundation, you can head to www.wild.org, and you can also follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Wild Foundation, and also on YouTube at The Wild Foundation. All of this will be linked in the show notes at greendreamer.com as well, as always. Amy, if our listener wants to get involved with the work that you're doing or support the nonprofit's efforts, are there any calls to action that you can share with us? First would be to come to the 11th World Wilderness Congress in Jaipur, India in March 2020. And the second would be to follow us on Nature Needs Half or on the Wild Foundation. And in 2020, we're starting a campaign called the Survival Revolution. And we're looking for as many social media ambassadors as we can to reach out to those different communities. And ideally, we would love to recruit people who would like to make content and um, unique messages for those, those different demographics, too. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible wealth of wisdom. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I think that the most important thing for each and every one of us to do is wake up every morning grateful. Grateful to those who, who support us, both our human allies and our natural allies, and to just continue to return to that gratitude throughout the day and throughout the week. Yeah, we are.